In northern Israel, there is a large freshwater lake. It goes by many names, including the Sea of Tiberias, the Kinneret Sea, and most commonly, the Sea of Galilee. Its 33-mile shoreline is prevalently lined with towns, many of which have existed since ancient times. On the western shore, just north of the city Tiberias, there is a small dorp that is a veritable treasure trove for archaeologists. The name of the town is Migdal, or Magdala, like Mary from Magdala from the Gospels, who you might know as Mary the Magdalene. Amid the archaeological sites and carefully unearthed remains, there is a modern church, ornate and redoubtable, above whose entrance are three words written in large gilded letters. The message reads, Duke in Altum, which is translated into English as Cast into the Deep. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, a fortnightly podcast dedicated to revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. Duke in Altum, or Cast into the Deep, is a phrase that comes from the Latin translation of Luke's Gospel. In chapter 5, the author tells us that a large crowd had gathered around a rabbi of growing celebrity. His name is Jesus and seeing the extent of the gathered masses, he stepped into a fisherman's boat and asked its owner, a man named Simon, to row the two of them out from the shore. From the lake, Jesus was visible to more people, and the acoustics of the water naturally amplified his voice. Luke, the author, did not record the content of the sermon, but we do know that when Jesus had finished speaking, He told Simon, the fisherman, to take the boat farther away from shore and, once there, to let down his fishing nets into deep water. The Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, from which the church in Migdal borrows its inscription, reads, Ut cesavit altum loqui, dixit ad simonem, duc in altum, et lexate retia vestra in capturam. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Cast into the deep, and let down your nets for a catch. Despite the preacher's authority in other matters, Simon is the resident expert on fishing Lake Galilee, and he knows that Jesus' request is impractical. But in proper deference to the renowned rabbi in his boat, Simon avoids refusing Jesus directly. Instead, he attempts to gently apprise the landlubber of the situation. Assuming that Jesus fails to understand how to properly catch fish in the Sea of Galilee, he responds, Master, my comrades and I toiled throughout the night and took nothing. Of course, though, if you insist, I will let down my nets. It is interesting to speculate about the subtleties in this story. For example, it's quite probable that Jesus and Simon were acquainted 
prior to the events described in Luke 5. Perhaps they had seen each other many times along the crowded shore at morning, as Jesus purchased fish and Simon cleaned his nets. There's also a chance that they were more familiar than that. So as his eager audience pressed in, Jesus likely knew whose boat he was choosing as a lectern. He was confident that Simon would not hassle him as if he were a questionable interloper, but greet him with hospitality, if not the reverence due a rabbi of his status. Maybe Simon asked, Master, you honor me by teaching from my boat. How can I be of service? And to his surprise, Jesus might have replied something like, Since you ask, Simon, would you be so kind as to push us out a little? I can better teach from the water than the shore. I imagine Jesus accepting Simon's petrified expression as tacit agreement, and Simon's alacritous assent after regaining his wits. Was this the way in which Simon was drafted to steady the boat while the teacher gave his message? And having been so near to the end of his workday, for you see, before the unsuspecting fisherman was enlisted to row, he had been cleaning his nets, one of the final duties before his day was complete. As the way of it goes, Simon and all the other fishermen worked night shifts, as evidenced by his later remark to Jesus that he and his partners had toiled throughout the night without catching a single gill. Indeed, Simon, his partners, James and John, and all the lake's fishermen fished at night, not during the day. When the sun came up, they would return to shore, sell their catches, dight their vessels, clean their nets, and return home. Furthermore, as becomes important farther into the tale, we must understand that the fishing on Lake Galilee is shallow water fishing. Fishermen cast their nets into the shoals, and they did so at night. Thus, we note that Jesus' later instructions to Simon, Duke in Altum, cast into the deep, contradicts the standard practice on the lake. In baseball, the expression goes, three strikes and you're out. Firstly, when weary Simon was nearing the end of his day, a disappointingly unsuccessful one at that, Jesus asked the exhausted fisher to row out and steady the boat while he taught. Secondly, Jesus asked Simon to cast his nets at the wrong time of day, for by then it was late morning, and many hours since the fishing was good. Thirdly, Jesus told him to cast into the wrong part of the water. Cast into the deep, Jesus said, but the shallows were the recommended site. And, if we wanted to add a fourth, we would note that Jesus was asking Simon to re-dirty the nets he had so recently finished cleaning. Attempting to avoid acting upon the rabbi's obvious ignorance, Simon graciously demurred, saying, Master, we toiled through the night but have caught nothing. Jesus made no indication that he would withdraw his request, so Simon hesitantly added, But of course, if you tell me to... If you're sure that's what you desire, then I will let down my nets. As the fisherman's reservations failed to alter the rabbi's desire, Simon let down his nets. This story is a superb example 
of one of God's hallmarks. Asking us to do something that seems unconventional, incorrect, or otherwise contrary to our good sense and experience. It often feels like we are professional builders, and God is a random passerby telling us that if we installed windows before laying a foundation, then the final product would be twice as strong and take only half the time to build. Or, it's like we are professional fishermen, and God the landlubber tries to tell us that fishing, in the wrong part of the lake, at the wrong time of day, will result in a great catch. Sometimes, the proposition makes no sense to us. Indeed, what Jesus asked Simon to do was nothing short of absurd. But, to Simon's credit, he obeyed. When we trust in God, we do so based on testimonies recorded throughout church history, first-hand accounts of God's trustworthiness from those we know, and also our own experience. You see, blind faith is qualified as such, because generally speaking, faith is not blind. It is backed by evidence. Christian faith is built on God's long-standing and infallible record of fidelity and keeping promises. The Lord has a duly established credit score, as it were. But in the case of Simon, that day on the lake, he did not know about the divine omniscience of Jesus. Neither had he seen the rabbi work miracles, or accomplish any other work that would compel the fishermen to heed his command, Duke in Altum. So what was it then? Was there something about Jesus? Perhaps a redoubtable air that was heavy with authority? As we know from the many times that Simon is talked about in the Bible, the man was no pushover nor weak-willed nevish. He should have been quite comfortable telling Jesus no. And yet, for some unknown reason, something about Jesus compelled him to act against his head knowledge and do as he was bid. For whatever the reason, as absurd as the instructions were, Simon obeyed and the result was verily miraculous. When he cast his nets into the deep, they were suddenly filled with fish, so many in fact that the nets became compromised. Simon signaled to his partners James and John to hurry over and assist. They did, but even for two boats, the hull was nearly overwhelming, and as fish filled the craft to the gunnels, they were in danger of foundering. Indeed, so many fish filled the nets that they nearly sank two boats. The preternatural events we've been discussing are more than just the stuff of a great story. For in combination, they had a profound effect on Simon. After the great catch, Simon realizing that he was in the presence of godliness, fell to his knees before Jesus and, like many of the prophets and holy men and women who had come before him, trembled and begged, O Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus, with the words that God had replied to all of Simon's predecessors, said, Do not be afraid. That day was a pivotal moment for Simon, who we typically remember by the name Jesus called him. 
Peter. On the waves of Lake Galilee, in a boat overladen with fish, Peter realized that Jesus was something more than simply a charismatic preacher. Something much more. Peter realized that Jesus was holy and godly. Depart from me, Peter abjured, understanding that sinful men like he and holy men like Jesus are disparate and incompatible. But Jesus reassured him, Fear not, Simon, and take heart, for our catch today is nullity against the number of people that you and I, together, will return to God. The tale concludes that, when they had brought their boats to land, the fishermen left everything and followed Jesus. And followed Jesus they did. And a few years later, in the northern highlands of Israel, in a Greek city called Caesarea Philippi, Peter exhibited how his understanding of Jesus had been refined. For Peter boldly asserted that Jesus was not merely a prophet, as if that were a small thing, but truly the Christ and the Son of the living God. Nevertheless, even the best of us fall short time and again. As we discussed in Breakfast with Jesus, Season 1, Episode 7, in the aftermath of the arrest and execution of Jesus, Peter forgot what he had once known and relapsed into his former life as a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. Owing doubt or fear or whatever reason, Peter abandoned the life that God had envisioned for him, for which Jesus had groomed him. But one morning, after an unsuccessful night of fishing, Jesus returned to remind Peter of that very first day, when he first believed and felt who Jesus was, when he cast into the deep. Duke in Altum, Jesus commanded, in the wrong part of the water, during the wrong time of day, when Peter was exhausted. But then a miracle happened. A miracle which now seems small compared to the things that Jesus had done since that day. But it was the miracle that first showed Peter that Jesus was something more. And when he had been thoroughly reminded of that day, Peter resumed his walk and partnership with Jesus. Now, we can also ask about our role, which, like Simon, is to engage in a partnership with Jesus. This, though, can be a difficult task, and oftentimes what God requires of us will seem foolish or incorrect. We see ourselves as experts in certain areas, especially areas like our lives and our desires and our capabilities. We might feel like Simon, thinking, I'm the fisherman, not you. But when we say that, we forget that it was God who designed the sea, set its boundaries and told it, Thus far shall you come, and no farther. We forget that it was God who created the fish and ordered their habits, and it is at God's command that they remain. So who but God is to comment on the proper order of events. How can I assume to know the whereabouts of fish better than the Lord does? Just like when talking about my own life, how can I assert that I know where I should live more so than God? Or what my strengths and weaknesses really are? 
How can I say that I know better than God what will bring fulfillment to my desires and purpose to my life? My role, then, is not the planning as much as it's the execution. More than chart a new course, I should adhere to the one which God has already set forth, belief to do that which is asked of me, and carry out the mission with a willing, unhesitating spirit, secure in the knowledge that even if it doesn't make sense to me, it is right, because not one of God's plans are half-hearted or unfounded. Just maybe, Jesus will ask me to cast into the deep, and when he bids me duke in altum, I will do well to remember that it is not I, but Jesus, who knows where the fish are. So what is it that God is asking of us? Winston Churchill said that all great things are simple and can be expressed in single words. I believe that God's desires can also be expressed in single words. Words like trust, obedience, love, justice, relationship, compassion, fidelity. These things that God asks of us are simple, though not necessarily easy. Like planting a field, shooting a bullseye, or maintaining a friendship, these things are simple, yet require effort, practice, and perseverance. And, what's more, God will continually raise the bar on that which is expected of us. When we begin to grow comfortable, and when we near complacency, God increases the challenge. But even when the specifics of the Lord's ask change, the generalities do not. At the heart remain single words. Trust, love, faith. Once more, consider Simon Peter, to whom Jesus said, Cast into the deep. Though Simon did as requested, he was reluctant and hesitant. Yet, at the end of the day, when push came to shove, no one can argue contrary to the fact that Simon did. And while the end goal is to act with alacrity, not hesitancy, when we are starting out, to obey God's request, even if we do it with skepticism, is enough. For if we act, then even if there's room for improvement, at the end of the day, we did. We obeyed the Lord. When first meeting God, it's okay to be cautious and wary, just like in any new relationship. After a little while, a legacy of God's faithfulness will manifest itself. Over time, the history will grow, the track record will solidify, the bond is strengthened, and then we can work toward wholehearted dedication and ready obedience. That said, when we start out, it's understandable and okay if we don't want to get our nets dirty again, not knowing what will happen if we listen to Jesus, whose authority is not yet obvious and whose instructions contradict our experiences. But if we dare to take that first uneasy step, and then a second one with less hesitation, we'll find that our stride lengthens with the third, and the fourth is a bit smoother, and with the fifth there is confidence, and by the sixth we trust the ground, and by the seventh we trust ourselves, 
so that by the eighth we want the ninth, and with the ninth we feel the impetus, and by the tenth our foot falls with God's, and we can say that we are walking step by step by step with the Lord. And if, somewhere down the road, maybe at step eleven or eleven thousand, Jesus asks me to take up my cross, which is really his cross, and bear untold hardships to promote his gospel of good news, then maybe I will be eager to follow. I might not know how taking up that cross will accomplish what Jesus claims it will, but I do know that Jesus has never, no, not even with a single step, abandoned me or let me down. Before he knew it, Simon went from begrudgingly wetting his nets to boldly leading the nascent Christian movement. That transition had an uneasy beginning, and there were setbacks along the way. But it happened because Simon chose to act on single words like trust. After calling the small band of Israelites to fledgling nationhood, God gave that specially chosen group a set of instructions, called Torah in Hebrew. It was novel and felt like a lot. Perhaps it felt almost undoable. Indeed, who among us can live up to God's prescriptions? But in response to such doubts, the Lord gave these words of reassurance. This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear and do it? But the word is very near to you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. Sometimes we ask, God, not too far. That's because stepping beyond our comfort and into the unknown is not only inconvenient, but it can be terrifying. And as we ask, not too far, God repeats the words back, not too far. They return with a different meaning. The command is not too far. It is not too far that you need to ask who will bring it to you. Not too far that you need to wonder how. But look, it is very close. Already it is in your mouth and in your heart, and you can do it. You don't need to wonder how you will gather people and build my church. You don't need to understand all the details about how my holy kingdom is being built on earth as it is in heaven. Behold, it is very near to you. Simon, you yourself said that all night you have been casting your nets. What I ask of you is not too far. Will you now cast your nets once more, this time though, for me? Cast your nets into the deep and prepare for a catch. Duke and Altum.
My name is Ben Laboot, and thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry today. Our mission is to reveal beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. If this podcast helps you do that, then please consider sharing it with those you know. You can find us online at storiesofsymmetry.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Stories of Symmetry. Moreover, you can also subscribe to us on your favorite app and leave us a positive rating or review. Join us again in two weeks for the penultimate episode of Season 2 titled Harmonic Oscillation. Until then, go with God, go in peace.